You're listening to the Brookside Church Sermon Podcast. We are a progressive and inclusive community of faith in the heart of Morris County, New Jersey, reminding everyone that they are the beloved child of God. For more information, visit us online at brooksidechurch.org. The first reading today is from 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 13. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move, remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, and the greatest of these is love. Thank you, Karen. How many of you, everybody heard that before? Yeah, where might you have heard that read? Weddings. Weddings, okay. So, all right. So this is from Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. And he, in this letter, this is, I would say, the cornerstone, the peak of the, Paul's rhetoric. Uh, he praised the importance of love. Love, he said, was more important than our prayers, our rituals, our knowledge, our charity, or our beliefs. And most of us have heard this poetic language of the love chapter in weddings, but what's often missed, though, is the reference of the story behind the text. Most of us have not really read the whole letter of 1 Corinthians to try to make sense of why this part fits. But this church, this, this letter is part of a larger, wider letter to a, this part is part of a lar- larger, wider letter to a congregation that's in crisis. So the early Christian community in Corinth was divided with various factions proclaiming a sense of spiritual superiority over others. Not much like today, right? It, the, the, things haven't changed much in 2,000 years. It was written to a people that had forgotten why they exist. I'm just pause for a minute and ask you, do you think we have figured out why we exist? Do we remember why we come to church, what this is for? This 
Corinthian church, they had forgotten that the primary mark of faithfulness to Jesus' teachings would be their love for each other. Love, Paul said, is greater than any other faith characteristic. Christian communities exist in order to learn how to love. That's why we exist. No other reason. We exist in order to learn how to love. And the picture that Paul presents to us is a widely inclusive, radically welcoming, indiscriminate, broadly accepting, all-embracing, wholly unlimited love. So while this passage is rarely heard outside of weddings, the love that it refers to is more than just a characteristic of faithful marriage. Love, Paul says, is the, is the defining mark of a faithful community. For followers of Jesus, learning to love is why we exist. It's why our faith communities exist. Jesus, remember, was the one who blessed the poor, healed the leper, ate with the thieves, protected the accused, and welcomed the outcasts and excluded. Jesus loved so much, he was crucified for it. And even so, it, had al it has always been, since then, hard for Christians, those who follow Jesus, to, to actually fully embrace Jesus' teachings. Or at least to live them out. It's not easy to be a community built on the radically welcoming love of God. And just like the early church in Corinth, it's easier for us to claim ourselves religiously superior for our prayers or our religious practices or our knowledge or our philanthropy or our doctrine than for us to actually create safe spaces of love where everyone can flourish together. Spaces that radically welcome everyone. Religious folks want to be religious, but nobody wants to learn to love. Or at least that's the way it looks because it's the only way I can make sense of the religious phenomenon that has existed since the 1980s that shames and rejects certain kinds of families and justifies it by the need to protect families or family values. A few years ago, I watched a video of a discussion among several pastors about the meaning of the word home. They were starting a new public relations campaign as a church, and it was titled Welcome Home, like I said a few minutes ago. So they had gathered to explore together what the word home meant for them. It seems self-evident that the word home is positive, right? It's a positive word. It brings about notions of comfort and intimacy and safety. One pastor focused on the language that's often used to talk about the church. Some of the most important words, she said, were family and body and house. Family, she said, was about unconditional love and acceptance. The language of the body was about us learning to function together as we act on God's behalf in the world. And the image of house, she said, was about creating a tangible structure in society so that people are drawn to it. When we talk about the church as a home, she said, we're actually talking about changing the world. Well, then another pastor said that home was a place where we feel safe enough together that we can take off our masks. And I remember listening to them and how moved I was. Yes, I thought, I want to be a part of that kind of community. I want a kind of family where I can be myself. I want to be in a church where I feel known, where I'm fully accepted as I am without having to pretend there's that word, without having to pretend to be someone else. I wanted an environment where I feel accepted. Masks off. But then a young pastor from New York City with his arrogance and his ponytail, he spoke up and he said, well, you know, we're taking for granted that people know what a home even is. 
He said, people move to this city because home is not a welcoming place for them. There's nothing there for me, they would say. That's why I came here. So he said that in his work, he actually has to begin with the basics, redefining what the word home should be. I think that's the work that every church community should do. We take for granted that everyone knows what church is or what home is or what a marriage is or what family is. And so the work we're going to be doing together at Brookside Church over the next month is this. Just like the Apostle Paul was reminding the church in Corinth why they existed, we're going to be rethinking the meaning of the word family together. What is a family? Why do families exist? Where do they come from? This is important work to do in our age. And whether we recognize it or not, family is a dangerous word. For those of us who have grown in safe families and safe homes and never had to question our situation in life, maybe we wonder, why would family be a dangerous word? But ask anyone who works for an organization that promotes human rights or women's rights or LGBTQ rights, they will tell you one of the most potent opinions that they have to work against is the belief in a cultural threat to family values. Or sometimes it's coded as Judeo-Christian values. For many, this need to protect family values has often meant being excluded from the family, sometimes violently. Since the 1980s, a religious movement that has actively began organizing around the notion that they're going to protect family values. And from this perspective, feminists or LGBTQ persons or progressives of all kind, they not only lack family values, their existence is seen as a threat to family values. So according to this kind of thinking, family is about one man and one woman living together in a church-sanctified marriage. And that's where the phrase communitarian com- communitarianism, sorry, complementarianism comes in. Co- see, I even have trouble with the word complementarianism. So complementarianism is uh, a view that's still popular in many churches. In fact, actually go back and look at Princeton this year, and they actually booted a very famous pastor who was coming to preach there. Uh, one of the largest churches in New York City, he was coming to preach to them about church growth, and Princeton Theological Seminary said, you can't have him here. He's a complementarianist. He believes that women belong in the kitchen and that should not be working. See, this view is that men and women serve roles that are complementary to each other, that man provides for the wife and the children, and that the woman does all the work to care for the family, cooking, cleaning, and child care. And for them, this is what it looks like to grow up in a Christian household. Those who challenge the traditional understanding of gender identity or human sexuality, that sounds like me a little bit, actually, right? They're seen as enemies of the family. They're openly aiming to combat movements for women's rights or the rights of LGBTQ persons or even progressive churches like ours. They've created organizations like, listen to it, Focus on the Family, the Family Research Council, the American Family Radio. So in essence, they've stolen the word family and they've turned it into something violent. Some women still suffer spiritual abuse by being told to remain in abusive relationships in order to protect the sanctity of their marriage. It still happens. Homosexual family members hide in fear that their sexuality will be discovered by their family and they might be forced to attend conversion therapy. And though it's it's illegal in New Jersey, actually, 
Conversion therapy still happens and debates about it and the harm it causes are all over the news. Look last week and you'll see they're debating it in California about whether this should be legal or illegal. So elements of this cultural framework, though, we might pride ourselves as a progressive community. We move beyond that. But you know what? The, the elements of this cultural framework, they still seep into our everyday language, even in progressive circles. Think about it. Unmarried individuals, especially women, they're treated as that they can't be fully human without a spouse or without children. Divorced marriages, especially single mothers, they're spoken of in the language of brokenness. Broken marriages, broken families, broken homes. And so we create a culture where everything, anything other than the 1950s fiction of a nuclear family of one man, one woman, and 2.5 children, I wonder where that half of a child is, is less than ideal. It's less than Christian. It's unchristian even. I may be wrong, but I would guess that if we were to actually collect the data about our own congregation, we would find that many of us, if not most of us, come from families that look entirely different from this ideal. See, in this cultural framework, dangerous, family is a dangerous word because it works within an ideology of control. An ideology that justifies violence, especially against gender and sexual minorities. And this violence is reinforced by the theological emphasis on what is perceived as a Christian marriage. But here's what I believe. I believe that New York pastor, New York City pastor was on to something. That he was working in the right direction when he said, this whole notion of home needs to be rethought, needs to be redefined. We need to pay attention to what we really think about it. For us at Brookside, I believe that the term family is a similar term. It's a term that we, in our conversations with each other about who we are, has come up regularly. And it's, it's something that we need to think about. What do we think about this word? How do we define it? What is family? What do families look like? Why do families exist? I believe that if we're honest with ourselves, we'll find that the ideal family, if there is such a thing, will have nothing to do with its size or its shape. The number of men or women in it. In fact, actually, I think that if we were to read passages like we just read from Paul, the ideal family probably would have something to do with our ability to love each other. From the, this perspective, see, we should be suspicious of words like family and specifically family values. That's because rather than referring to safe spaces where radically inclusive love of God can be found, phrases like family and family values have now been co-opted so that they're used as an ideology that's dangerous to women or transgender persons or sexual minorities or a host of other unnamed folks that we don't even realize. So instead of protecting so-called family values, this is what I want to do. I want to suggest that what our calling as a congregation is, is to value families. Instead of protecting family values, what I want to suggest our calling is, is to value families. Families of all colors and all ages and all abilities and all shapes and all sizes. There's a feminist uh, scholar back um, a couple of years ago, actually a couple of decades ago. Her name was Ann Bathurst Gilson. And she said that when we intentionally value families, we turn the notion of family values inside out. Intentionally. Because valuing families, families become an inclusive concept. We embrace various differences among us instead of, instead of controlling and excluding them. 
This allows us to see the term family in a new light, in a way that extends beyond the nuclear family. Because family can include our partners and our close friends and our children, our biological families, even our companion animals. Whoever we have chosen to be family. I joked with Lois and Amy a few weeks ago, imagine if we were to take this seriously what our car decals might look like. <laughs> McGilson explains that Especially for LGBTQ folks, many people have actually had to separate from their biological families for the sake of their own safety and well-being. I have a family member right now who's wrestling with this current situation. Many, she said, even most of us need to learn how to be, just to be, and to create ways of being in relation to our various non-biological configurations of family. In this sense, see, choice serves to expand the notion of family rather than contract it. I didn't read the passage from Mark that's printed in your bulletin because I want to spend some time on it later. But if you read that section, you will hear Jesus say, Who are my family? Who are my mother and brothers and sisters? Is it not those who actively seek the justice of God? When she talks about choice, see, choosing your family, choosing safe places, she's not suggesting that we all have the freedom just to choose the circumstances of our life. That would be naive. Instead, she's emphasizing the importance of the, what she calls, quote, conscious movement towards intimate, nurturing relationships that enhance survival. If I were to write down family, if I put any word other than love, this is how I would define it personally, intimate, nurturing relationships that enhance survival. If a family doesn't provide the intimate, safe spaces that nurture relationships that enhance our survival, they're not families. They may indeed be the opposite. See, she's talking about the need that all of us have to be in safe spaces with others where we can be and begin to experience the kind of radically inclusive love that Jesus talked about. The kind that the Apostle Paul was writing about. I believe that the gospel is calling us today to move in a direction of valuing families, regardless of what they look like, even if they're families that have been chosen for the sake of our safety and well-being. This is what will make us at Brookside a more inclusive community. And as we learn to love better, I believe we'll begin to see those differences, even differences in what families can look like in ways that are more faithful to the gospel. We'll see that differences like race and sexual orientation and gender and age and physical or mental abilities, these are actually God-given opportunities for us to grow, for us to learn to love each other better. And this is how we're going to grow spiritually and mentally and morally, by learning to value families. And when we do this, we'll see our differences as a reminder of why we exist rather than treating differences as a threat to our existence. See what I'm getting at here? That, I believe, is what the Apostle Paul was talking about in his letter. That's how he was trying to address this divided community. They were fighting over which faction was better. He was just telling them the reason you exist is to learn to embrace your differences and to love each other despite them. Love is kind, he said. It's not proud or boastful. It doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. Love, family, they rejoice in justice and truth. Love, Paul says, always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love is found in spaces where intimate, nurturing relationships flourish. I'm almost done, I promise. We live in a world where a large number of people have been excluded, dishonored, unprotected, 
and forced to persevere without hope. By the way, I just took all the words and then negated them. They live, they have been left out, left to suffer, lonely and in pain, lacking any sense of belonging. All they've ever known of religion is a self-seeking, exclusive form of violence. They've not known the feeling of love and belonging. They've not been told that they are God's beloved. They've not experienced the radical welcome of God. And if you take it the way that I did it this morning, they've actually gone against their baptism vows. I believe that that can change. And I believe that we, Brookside, can change that. In fact, I think that we must change that. And when I pray for Brookside, I pray the prayer the Apostle Paul prayed to the church in Corinth at the very beginning of the book. He said, with all of their resources and knowledge and skills and spiritual gifts, he was praying that they would be a community where those excluded people can find a place to call home. A place where families of all kinds, families like theirs, these people who have been excluded are welcome. So let us love. Let's let the radically welcoming love of God be the defining mark for our community. Let's find ways to learn to love. And remember that the reason that Brookside Community Church exists is for us to learn to love. Let's follow Jesus, the one who loved so much he was crucified for it. It may not be easy, but I pray that we become a community built on this kind of love. And words like family take the meaning of Safety, intimacy. This kind of love I'm talking about is the wildly inclusive, radically welcoming, indiscriminate, broadly accepting, all-embracing, wholly unlimited love that Jesus taught us to have. That's the kind of community I want to build. That's what gets me excited about the stuff that we do together. This is why I come to church. I don't come to church for the ritual. I don't come to church for the money. Right? I don't come to church because I think God will magically love me more because I'm here. I come here because I think we have work to do as a society. And this is the place where we're God, God is calling us to do that work. I want us to see if we can't imagine building a community together where the word family means the kind of love that Paul was talking about. Where all of our differences are embraced and where all of our families are valued. Amen?